Spy gadgets are fun to look at, and today we take apart the gadgets in Moonraker with our special guest, Joe Papalardo. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. And Vicky Hodge Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us as we're cracking the code of Moonraker. We have a return visit from our special guest today in our smartest spy in the room segment, Joe Papalardo, an author and magazine contributor to Smithsonian Air and Space, National Geographic, and Popular Mechanics. Joe has written articles about space industrialists like Drax and spy satellites in space. And he wrote the book Inferno, the true story of a B-17 gunner's heroism and the bloodiest military campaign in aviation history. It's available on Amazon.com. Go check it out. So we're excited to get his insights into Moonraker. Let's go. All right, everything's a gadget in this far out space flick. The laser guns, the space station, everything, but some based on real stuff. We had space stations in 1979. In fact, they moved this film up ahead of For Your Eyes Only to take advantage of the interest in space movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, and Star Trek, and others. In the pre-title sequence, the hijacking of the space shuttle, of course, we see the hijacking of a space shuttle that we later find out that Drax is behind. In the sense, this shuttle is a huge gadget, but the hijacking... Hey, Joe, what, what do you think of a space shuttle hijacking like they did it in Moonraker? The actual heist is absurd. <laughs> the one thing I really like about it is that there actually was a transport system where they'd put the shuttle on top of a, a commercial airliner and move it from place to place. So that part of it actually is true. Now, the, the part that it gets ridiculous is when they climb into it and fly it away, obviously. The reason the shuttle had those huge orange tanks and uh, it was to give the fuel and the oxidizer to make that thing fly. It's just way too heavy to fly. So you can't just light the engines and go and zip off the, the top of, a, of an airplane. Even if that was, you know, the physics made sense, the actual <laughs> rocketry does not. So that that is a patently absurd portion of it. And also the fact that Drax flies it back to his headquarters. I mean, that's not an airplane, that's a space plane. And space <laughs> planes are essentially gliders when they come back down. Well, that's so, why they have the 747 to move it from right. place to place. If it could fly on its own, it would, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a dumb heist um, at the end of the day, unfortunately. All right. And this is the pre-title sequence. This is how we start. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. But we have to keep in mind that in real life, the space shuttle developed by NASA was in development at the time, but its first launch wasn't really until April 12, 1981, two years after Moonraker came out. So the public may have known some things about the shuttle, but it wouldn't know a heck of a lot about the shuttle. So in well, real Dan, life. Let, let me stop you there for a second though, Dan, because yeah. their actual first launch was in 81, but they did five test flights in 1977. Yeah, yeah Where true. they had the shuttle on top of the carrier, the 747. Mm -hmm. And that was two years beforehand. So. I really like the way they did the modeling on this because the that really was what the space shuttle Endeavor looked like oh, yeah. on its last two flights in the testing. And the first first couple of tests, they actually had this thing on the on the back for aerodynamics on the on the tail section, uh, so you didn't see the exposed rockets or exhaust or whatever those things are. <laughs> but this thing really was. If you actually look at the pictures, they did a pretty good job with those models on how they actually did that. Now, one thing that I also liked about it is the 747, they only had one of them initially, and it was one they got from American Airlines. So the cheat line, which is the, the striping that goes all along the fuselage, is the blue, white, and red going from top to bottom that you see on the American Airlines planes. And so for the first few years, they actually kept that cheat line on it. So it was nice to see that. Obviously, the rest of the decals were for Drax, not for NASA. Mm -hmm. So that would have been different. So I really like that. And then finally, the, the last touch that I really liked is on the tail, it says the number 905, which actually was the tail number of this real 747 that acted as the shuttle carrier. I really like the way they did a the modeling on this thing and the way they did the coloring and the, um, that cheat line. I thought that was made it more authentic feeling. Derek Meddings is the special effects director and genius who worked on many of the miniatures used in Bond movies, like The Spy Who Loved Me, Stromberg's Lipperous Ship, and more, and Moonraker for the space station, which model was about 30 feet across, and the shuttle, which Ken Adams said is the only prop based exactly 
on the NASA space shuttle. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it really looked like the shuttle. Right, Joe? I mean, it looked pretty authentic. Making this sequence even more frustrating. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, modeling out a perfect Sherman tank and having it fight a, a dinosaur. I mean, it, <laughs> it, 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 to me, that's more frustrating. I mean, and, and it was early in the shuttle development program. And it, 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 to me, these are movies are sort of teachable moments, right? And, you know, they, you know it, 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 they got it so wrong that it seems like a lost opportunity since they went through the work of getting the modeling right. Okay, good point. All right. When Bond is meeting MQ and Freddie Gray for the briefing on the missing shuttle, Q presses a button on a mirror's frame. The mirror gets replaced by a monitor showing the wreckage of the 747 crash. The monitor comes in with a wipe transition. Now, the wipe transition has been used extensively in the Star Wars series, and they used it here as well. As for the monitor, that would have been doable. I don't know if the technology existed in 1979 to do a wipe move from mirror to a clunky 1979 monitor. However, we do have mirrors today that have embedded monitors. So this is a bit realistic and with the wipe move, a bit futuristic too. Then we see Jaws and his metal teeth. I can see where you can have metal teeth. Okay. George Washington, the first US president was rumored to have wooden teeth. So metal might be a little more durable. So, okay, I could go along with him maybe having metal teeth. Yeah, but the question I have on that scene is, where the heck was he hiding? That plane was not very large. And, and he you saw the whole You saw the whole plane, the interior of the plane in most of the shots, and then all of a sudden he's standing there at the door. Yeah, <laughs> there is someone else in the cockpit, I think, uh, that you kind of see a shoulder. Uh, I'm pretty sure on the right side of the screen, I think you do see some kind of shoulder or something in the yes. top. The thing that gets me about his teeth, though, is, and this is kind of like Teehee's prosthetic arm in Live and Let Die, it's like if you don't have the other object that you're going to crunch in a vice or something, then your other hand, or in his case, his teeth, he would have to have the tensile strength to be able to crush something or whatever. It's not just the teeth, or it's not just the arm. You got to... You gotta have the power to do that anyway. But I'm gonna let that slide because that's part of my willing suspension of disbelief. Dan, when he was biting <laughs> cables and stuff, that was all just licorice. Don't worry about I it. I know. Delicious <laughs> licorice. <laughs> that I think he could do. <laughs> and then we see Q provide the wrist gun, which we will talk about. Standard equipment activated by nerve impulses from the wrist. Yeah. I kind of like that, and we'll talk about the wrist gun in a little bit, because he uses it a couple of times, and it's Q, again, comes up with some pretty handy devices and gadgets for Bond. But Drax, he was an industrialist, right, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the interesting thing about his scheme, if you look at it, you know, how, how the movie ages well or it doesn't, it does sort of, his scheme sort of hits on sort of the, the Gattaca effect, as like some people call it, where spaceflight is opened up to rich people, industrialists, people who can afford it, and leaving the rest of us behind to a crappy, you know, dystopian earthbound future. So, you know, Drax, his scheme is the ultimate embodiment of that, which is get my people into space and kill everybody else so they can come back. It's a manifestation sort of reflection of what, what's sort of happening now, space tourism, who gets affords to go who's behind the, the biggest space companies, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, and is there a have and have not sort of dynamic at play? And that informs me watching the movie now, um, whenever there's the industrialist, you know, the Titan who's got a, a scheme to go into space, you know, by himself. Well, we got two of them right now. <laughs> you know, they're launching even as we speak. Yeah, so once again, Ian is predicting the future in their Bond movies. Yeah, it's although I do cool. like the fact that we have two of them right now. Yeah. So they're having to fight each other off, which is kind well, of then, nice. Then you've got a William Gibson kind of a future where the, the industrialists are sort of at war and they replace the nation state. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you never you never know what dystopian future you're going to stumble into when you start going down these rabbit holes. Yeah. Yeah. When Bond is flying to Drax's villa and stuff, the pilot is flying him and looking over all of these beautiful things, all these buildings, all these all the grounds, all the facilities the beautiful mansion and everything else. And, and Bond's pretty impressed because Bond's kind of thinking, man, he's got everything. And uh, the pilot says to him, well, what he doesn't own, he doesn't want. 
And comes out, he owns the Eiffel Tower too, which, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't let him move. So it's like, okay, that was carrying it a little far. Yeah, uh, Bezos trying to do that. <laughs> you know, Bill Gates bought the Leonardo da Vinci uh, code book or whatever, didn't he? The, yeah, he did. Yeah. It, was some, it was something like that, one of the da Vinci things. One of his sketchbooks that uh, yeah. is now, I guess, visible to the world because it's going around in, the, in museums. All right, the next thing I want to talk about is the centrifuge trainer. I mean, it's the gadgets for astronaut training, and it, it seems real, realistic. Although Goodhead tells Bond that the machine can go up to 20 Gs, but she says that would be fatal. She says three Gs is the equivalent to takeoff pressure, and most people pass out around seven, which is when Bond first tries to release the chicken switch. He actually went up to 13. Now, according to medicaldaily.com, there was an Air Force officer, John Stapp, who demonstrated that a human could withstand 46.2 Gs mm. in an experiment, but it only lasted a few seconds. So it does go on to say that one of the roller coaster designs, which is where they do a lot of this testing for G-forces, lethal exposure would be 10 Gs for one minute. So the training gadget seems real. The numbers may be a bit off, but in any case, Bond would have had issues because he had some issues when he got off of that thing with the G-forces he achieved, especially over the course of the two minutes that he was in that contraption. Yeah, but it's a real contraption, right, Joe? Yeah. I mean, they really use this kind of thing in space training. They use it now. I mean, it's a it, it's the best way. I mean, how fast you spin, is that is gravity, right? So, I mean, a spaceship that spins, that's our, a way to make artificial gravity is another way of sort of looking at it. But the, uh, the, the duration is one, certainly a, a huge part of it. I just interviewed an astronaut who survived a, a, uh, an unplanned reentry during a launch um, of a Soyuz. And, and during a previous launch, a Russian had experienced up to 20 Gs coming back down. It, there's a lot of training. I mean, Bond is extremely physically fit, right? So he's got bit, a lot of core strength. So that helps you not pass out and knowing what to do during that situation, which Bond knows everything. So of course he does. So um, so there's things you can do to survive that situation that pilots do when they're, when they're pulling tight Gs and they need to perform, but no one can withstand it for long periods of time. And, and lower G forces at very low periods of time is damaging as well, which is something you have to consider on long duration flights to Mars and stuff like that which is another thing I cover. So there's a lot of real world applications as to what G-forces do to the human body. Um, we're optimized for 1G, life on planet Earth. I mean, that's, that's where we evolved and anything outside that is pretty much inherently damaging. But there's things you can do about it if you're ever caught in a centrifuge by you know, villains. <laughs> yeah, shoot a wrist dart at the thing and have it stop. <laughs> that would be my first go-to, yeah. <laughs> Hey, at least he's conscious enough to talk. And just like Joe said, you know, he's well-trained. All right. So we have another gadget here. Corinne, she was the pilot showing Bond to the estate and so on. She shows Bond Drax's safe. She looked at it and he said, okay, that's where it is. Thanks. She didn't exactly tell him where it was. But the safe rises from a clock on top of this bureau. And the safe itself is a gadget, but so is Bond's safe cracking device bond's safe cracking device here is pretty cool though it's disguised as a cigarette case and when open it's it's set against the safe and it has an x-ray capability to show the tumblers and everything and a digital readout as well and i was wondering if you're getting a digital readout what do you need the x-ray capability for? I mean, you got to see this stuff and get a digital readout? Uh, I don't understand that part. But maybe it's just to be cool and to show us, hey, you know, this is kind of cool stuff. And he uses it as a gag when he holds it up against Corinne's heart and says, oh, you got a warm heart or something. <laughs> that's maybe that's the joke. But I say, no, I don't think you're going to be able to have a gadget that size to crack a safe like that, Joe. I, I don't know. I... It seems odd to me that you could have this device in 1979. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the, the digital display was for the viewers, not so much the spy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, safe cracking is a is a is a noble a noble and ancient sport. And and the, the interesting thing, and whenever I see the, the hidden you know safe in the wall or something that that 
if it's disguised, that's its main defense. A safe out in the open needs a really complicated lock. And I'm all about redundancy as well, but if you know where it's hidden, I, I, that's what really got me about that scene, not so much the, the gadget, because x-ray technology has been around for obviously a long time. It's been been used before. Lead lining um, of safes, you know, right. made some of that not not very practical, right? But, but at the end of the day, whenever I see a movie set in this age and, and there's a safe cracking, there's something digital, I always think of, the modern implication of hacking or something or what that would look like today and it would be all digital right and, and <laughs> it would be magic if there's no there wouldn't be any at least there was an attempt to show you what was happening mechanically whereas today it's almost like merlin shows up and the doors open or the yeah you know, yeah that's true highway lights change or whatever it is so i kind of like that there was a very there was almost the practitioner part of it. you needed to be trained on how to use this device yeah. it wasn't just magic so there was something kind of cool about it even even though yeah it was kind of silly and teched up for no great reason um but there was some there was some thought behind it i'll give him some no pun intended some props for that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, i suppose uh, we need to remember that this was the late 70s and not the 60s so there is a slight different view on this one although throughout the bond series we've seen different cracking devices of different sizes you only live twice on her majesty's secret service these are just two examples that precede this movie. There are safe cracking devices that use x-rays to see the configuration and deduce the combination that probably would have been usable in 1979. As Joe has alluded to, they're using lead lined and nylon now to help with this. So the technology might have existed to do what they showed. But my guess is that it wouldn't have been doable in something as compact as Bond's cigarette case. The, the interesting thing you point out about the 70s too, it's the age of digitization and miniaturization that we're sort of still experiencing now. Everything is getting smaller. Everything is getting more compact and little powerful computers that took up a room are shrinking and, and really forward looking people are seeing things get smaller and more personal. Personal devices are starting to become a, a concept, right? So they're just projecting what's coming in, in a way. So. Uh, again, like looking looking ahead, it is not a great device, but it's you know, when you think about what's the th the thought process behind that device at the time that the movie came out, it really is on trend. It's on futuristic trend. So it's kind of cool. It's great that you pointed out that it was set in the '70s. That's where the mindset was: space, small yeah. things, yeah. personal gadgetry, all the stuff we're enjoying right now. Quite frankly, yeah. And speaking of miniaturization, the miniature camera <laughs> that Bond uses to photograph what's in Drax's safe is, yeah, okay. Yeah, miniature cameras have been around a while. The first functional prototype was made in 1936. Walter Zapp, who was a German-born guy in Lat Latvia in 1905, began development, <laughs> development of a miniature camera in 1932. So this is not a problem for Bond to have one in 1979. But really, you're a spy. What's Q Branch doing <laughs> with the lens? This, is, this gets me here. <laughs> where the O, the, the second O of 007 is the lens. And it says 007 on the thing. Really, come on. Not that it matters because everybody in the world knows who James Bond is and everywhere he walks, oh, you're Bond. We're going to kill you, whatever. But geez, let's, let's make it obvious, I guess. You know, supposedly somebody doesn't know who James Bond might be and he gets captured and they get his camera. Oh, oh 007, come on. Anyway, it's cute, but geez, give us a break. But remember in Live and Let Die, they had the cards that a solitaire was dealing at 007 in there secretly. Uh, it's maybe one of their little cute devices. <laughs> anyway, I don't like the 007 on the lens. <laughs> Sorry. All right. I don't know. My least favorite gadget uh, of all time <laughs> in any spy movie is the gondola or more affectionately referred to as the bondola which is a motorized gondola that races what's down the canal like? <laughs> hey what's that to like <laughs> i like that it's obviously in venice you can't cause wakes with motorboats and stuff but he's got no problem with this uh he's motorized uh, a, a motorized gondola racing down the canals and then it turns into this land vehicle when it's this inflatable thing pops out the bottom when he's trying to escape his water pursuers. Yeah, well, I mean, it turns <sighs> into a hovercraft. 
And that's why you have the controls that say turbo fan yeah. and veins as an option. There's no wheels. It just turns into a hovercraft, which is kind of really goofy. Uh, yeah, this was madness. I mean, just in case you might need a gondola that can go on land. Just, just in case, man, we got one. And it, we're shipping it to Venice. I mean, with flying cars and with boats that turn into vehicles if uh it's something the engineers always say if something's built to be two things it's bad at both um and that's a terrible <laughs> high-speed boat and not a very good vehicle on the land either so you know it was a ridiculous thing but it showed how ridiculous that concept really is because right how many times do you need that particular combination but <laughs> really terrible at both i mean you're not getting a high quality vehicle either way yeah uh, the, the only salvation to this whole thing was the pigeon doing the double take it, it, it's a, that, that saved the scene it's like okay have the gondola that's fine a supporting actor uh, other than maybe the the disappearing car the vanquish in die another day that's another one of my least favorite gadgets but this one's tough to take Ah, but while Die Another Day is lower down on my ranking of Bond films, I don't actually mind the invisible car. Uh, it's yeah. Halle Berry and the second half of the film that's my problem. <laughs> well, the second half of the, this film is my problem with this film because the first <laughs> half of it, it's actually a pretty decent Yeah, Yeah, actually, I, you know, when I'm watching it two or three more times, I'm thinking, well, actually, I, I almost like three quarters of it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but then, <laughs> then it gets a little iffy. The book itself is fabulous reading. If you ever want to pick up Ian Fleming's book for Moonraker, it's really a great read. Anyway. Yeah, well, they had to change the story, though, Dan, because yes. when they wrote Moonraker, when he wrote Moonraker, yeah. rockets were fairly new. Yeah, we talked about this already. Yeah, so, it, but one thing I do like that they did that's not a gadget, but from the book was how Bond and Goodhead end up underneath the rocket where they're yes. going to get blasted away. Yes. That actually came out of the yes. book. So that yes. was really nice to see. It was. It was. And in this scene, of course, with the gondola thing, uh, there's a funeral boat that passes his gondola. Okay, it's one more way, as we're going to see, not to kill Bond. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen tons of ways. And as the gadget casket opens, and what we assume is a professional knife thrower throws a knife at Bond. He hits the gondolier. Maybe that was his intention first. But he throws another, and he misses. And Bond takes it and throws it back at the knife, and boom, the knife killer's dead. It's like, okay, Bond is better even at throwing knives than a professional knife thrower, which, okay, maybe, maybe he is. That's fine. But how about having an automatic rifle on that thing and just shooting the hell out of Bond in the boat instead of a freaking knife i mean come on what or have it shoot hand grenades or something at it yeah something because they're willing to do that obviously because after the knife thing fails there's a guy in the boat shooting an automatic weapon at bond and then they're chasing him shooting automatic weapons at bond so why not do that first ah i don't know i don't know it just drives me crazy yeah now this is the second roger moore movie with a tricked out casket Right, so oh, in, yeah, in Live and Let Die, they had the, the casket where they put it over the body and they picked up the body. In this case, the casket opens by itself. The There's the spinning knife thing. So it's pretty cool. You could see somebody trying to build this, whether it's practical or not, it's a different thing. But you could actually see some goon going like, hey, let's do this, and having that work like that. I like that this is not just any old coffin, but one with rotating knives for selection. <laughs> Where is the fun in just having a henchman with a gun? <laughs> because Bond would be dead. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah, exactly. Where is the fun in that? <laughs> uh, hey, speaking of spies and their gadgets, we know spies love coffee. And we found a great one for you with a perfect name, Spy Coffees. And you get 20% off with roasts like Spy Master Dark Roast or Double Agent Medium Roast, my favorite, or Agent Blend Light Roast in whole bean, ground, or even some K-cups. I'm drinking some right now. Make a clandestine trip to spycoffees.com and use the code SPYNAV, S-P-Y-N-A-V, at checkout and get 20% off. Spycoffees.com. They're one of our sponsors. Support them. We appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, so when Bond initially discovers the lab with the nerve gas, 
there is a gadget on the wall which is a keypad to enter the room. Obviously, this is a believable gadget. But what makes this one notable, sorry for the pun, <laughs> is that the correct numbers play the five keynotes from the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Magnificent Seven also have their music represented in this movie. Yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, features the music from Richard Strauss, or Richard Strauss, from his music, Aususprach Zarathustra. It's fantastic, and you know I collect autographs, and I actually have Richard Strauss's autograph. Cool. All right, Drax's space station. Okay, wow. Something in itself. The whole thing's a gadget, but it has a radar jamming system, so no one on Earth knows it's there. Okay, it's, it's 1979. We have tons of satellites in space in 1979. Hard to believe a radar jamming device would render the gigantic space station virtually invisible to technology. Okay, no, I, I'm saying no. That's impossible in 1979. The station also has a gravity device. The station rotates to create artificial gravity. Really, like centrifugal force. Even with strong centrifugal force at work meaning the space station must rotate rapidly to create a push to the outer walls. Well, yikes, is that going to happen in 1979? Absolutely not. It's not happening now in our space station. No way. Well, it has not been done yet, only in movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which we mentioned already. So this one is really a stretch to realism, and we cannot gravitate towards this one. Oh, I'll gravitate towards it. <laughs> I'll, grab, you know, I'll gravitate towards it all day long. I love I love space stations, and it, it's impossible for them to do at the time. But there are private space stations being designed. There's there's one attached to the International Space Station. They're talking about butting out other ones. The time of private space stations is is almost upon us. So the thing about gravity that you bring out as well microgravity, zero gravity is bad. Microgravity is better. So it doesn't have to spin to one G's worth of spin to have benefit. So if it's spinning a little more slowly, you're getting let, you know, you're not getting the full gravity, but you're getting something that's better and better for you and better for better for long duration flight, certainly. So I, I see a space station. I'm always looking for the for the, the glimmer of hope rather than the absurdity. Um, <laughs> So I, well, I, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question about what I think is a little absurd. <laughs> They're going to the tunnels, and there's no there's no zero gravity or microgravity there, right? But when they're out of the tunnel, there is. If the, if the if the spinning is causing it, how are the tunnels right. not spinning? Yeah, well, the, the the rule of thumb is always the you know the farther out you are, the more gravity you're getting. So it all depends on what that the axis it's spinning around. So everywhere is getting it it's all you know so but the, the 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 determination if you're close in to the center of where it's spinning you're getting no benefit if you're farther out you're getting the greatest benefit so when they're traveling, and, the, and the tunnels tended to be out exactly there should be <laughs> they have it exactly backwards what is it? <laughs> so then the other thing that i noticed too is when bond hits the emergency stop button the thrusters come on but that spin stops like that on a dime. And my guess is it's not going to, even with the thrusters, it's not going to be able to stop instantly like that. Well, nothing ever stops instantly, but, but in space without the resistance of any air, things do, you know, a little nudge goes a long way. That, that was an extreme amount of thrust that was shown. That would be enough to maybe even like change an orbit probably. But so it, it wouldn't take, the, the danger isn't that you overdo it, that you underdo it so that you overdo it and really send that spaceship into an uncontrolled spin or a deorbit burn or, or out into the farther reaches. So you don't want to play around with stuff like that when you're in space. So I thought that was extremely reckless of Bond to do it. Yeah. Well, he's reckless go. a lot. <laughs> yeah, he is. Now, what about the radar cloaking devices here, Joe? I mean, we, we know about Star Trek and the Klingons and they have cloaking devices, but he's got a, he's got some device here that that makes it invisible to to radar on Earth. It's easy to imagine a cloaked 
space system. It's it, it, radar is one of them, one way to do it. And and the reason I I know about this is because this is what people are discussing right now. How do you know what's in orbit? Usually you get small, right? And and that that helps you hide. But you also have to hide from radar. There's something called the space fence. It's set up in Kwajalein Island, and it can monitor it. Right now, it just got set up and started working this year. I'm sorry, last year. It can spot things the size of a golf ball, and they have to identify what those are, see if there's things that are going to hit, see if there's any space weapons, if there's weird maneuvering. This is all happening now. So, And radar is a big part of that. So one thing you do is make sure the radar waves uh, under certain frequencies bounce off in different directions, just like a stealth airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, except you're doing it in space. And then you have to hide from the optical telescopes, which is harder now because there's more telescopes going into space to look at the other satellites. So <laughs> there is a huge cat and mouse game going on right now, including radar, ground-based and increasingly space-based, to see what the hell's going on up there. And it's China, Russia, and the United States are, are all sort of up there doing things, trying to figure out what, what each other are, are doing. So. All that's real. And small satellites make all of this even more complicated. So yeah. you can hide small satellites posing as space junk and in conjunction, they can do all sorts of nasty stuff. So it's that is all more realistic than people want to think. It's not really kumbaya in space. It's a contested environment by militaries and governments. And but would it have been in 1979? Absolutely. Okay. But it'd be a lot easier to hide stuff up there, except things were bigger. So I, I, oh, I play that game of trade-off, but I think it's more active, complex, and high stakes now than even in 79, even during the Cold War, because there are more players, because there's more technology, yeah. because we're not under the firm rubric of mutually assured destruction. All those tent poles are not there. It's more Wild West now. That's what the people in the Space Force and Space Analysts have told me independent of each other they, they use the same hey it's like the wild west up there now so wow. it's it, this is a more prescient aspect of this movie than maybe they even intended but, yeah. but when i look at it that's immediately where my mind goes yeah all right just as a point of reference the space station in moonraker was 200 meters in diameter which is about 656 feet so it's a pretty big device so anyway that was cool joe thanks for enlightening us and really it makes things scary now <laughs> The smartest spy in the room. There you go. All right. I just talk to the smartest spies in the room. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> smart nor spy. All right. And of course, Drax wants to launch these globes, which have the this particular gas on board that's going to wipe out 5 billion people on Earth, roughly, because each one, he said, of his 50 globes can wipe out 100 million people. So, all right. So he's good for 5 billion and this is kind of similar to what Blofeld was kind of doing in Honor Majesty's Secret Service as well. You know, those globes are a gadget to Drax. Mm. And you say about 5 billion people, right? So in 1979, the Earth's population was about 4.4 billion. So he has a little wiggle room there in terms of the size. Now he doesn't have enough because we're at 7.8 uh, billion people. But with the Earth covering as much geography as it does, there's the mountains, there's the oceans. How are only 50 globes going to distribute enough of this gas to kill 4.4 billion people? I'm calling this totally not believable. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of agree, too, because really it's the same kind of thing with Blofeld and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Because in reality, really, you'd have, to, you'd have to pretty much kill everyone on Earth because his space population really is kind of small. And it could be overtaken by survivors on Earth, so... It would be tough, I think, to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go through that much genetic tailoring or, or specific, go with a biological weapon. You're going to get more bang for your buck. Your dispersal <laughs> methods are just as good. You know, you, th- that's where he should have invested his his ma- weapons of mass destruction money. If he was a villain of any, you know, repute. <laughs> all right, all you bad guys out there, don't listen to Joe. <laughs> There's a bad guy out there that can deliver nerve toxins that could kill just as many people that right now i mean you know north koreans have Mm. icbms that you can mount and those are space weapons by the way they shoot higher warheads higher than the space station they come back down so that's to me that sounds like a space weapon filled with toxic globes that can take out tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people all of soul really millions with nerve agents so 
I mean, we've got a supervillain, if you really want one, who could use a space weapon loaded with nerve agents to kill billion, millions of people right now, you know? That's um, true. So. That's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the small weapon then. <laughs> the wrist dart gun worn by Bond. Yeah, I think that was a cool gadget, and it saved his life in the G-Force machine because he, he shot it out to stop it because the release button didn't work. It was jammed intentionally. And he shoots Drax with it as he escorts him out the hatch into space and through the airlock and so on. So this was a pretty cool little device activated by nerve impulses from the wrist. So, sure, they had derringers stuck up sleeves in the 1800s and stuff. So why not a dart gun? And he had a couple of different kinds of darts he could load it with too, right? So wrist activated, of course, like he said. And I like when Bond uses it in the G-Force centrifuge machine. You see this quick flashback in his mind of him firing it in M's office at a painting on the wall which was I thought was a nice touch in that sequence where that flashes through his head while he's almost losing consciousness. You know, now this gadget actually got me thinking about how realistic it could be. Mm-hmm. Because like you say, they they have derringers and stuff like that. And my first and obvious comparison in the movies would be Spider-Man, right? Shooting the webs from his wrists. I mean, it's almost the same type of thing. That started in August of 62. So that concept coming for, out in 1979 would have made sense. Then I started thinking about the other wrist-fired weapons. And as you mentioned, the Derringer, the Derringer on a spring release from the wrist. Now, the first movie that I could find that had such a thing was a movie called The Sheriff of Fractured Jaw in 1958. And the problem is the character has one of these spring-loaded guns. He goes to demonstrate it to somebody, this guy Tibbs, and the wrist thing doesn't come shooting out. Probably the best known example of it, though, is James West in Wild Wild West. Yeah. He had the spring-loaded Derringer that worked really nicely. We also see something similar in Taxi Driver, Desperado, and Django Unchained. So to me, this wrist dart gun is totally believable. Yeah. One aside here, when Bond shoots the painting in M's office, it is the portrait of King William III at the Battle of Boyne in 1690. Interestingly enough, Bernard Lee played William III in the 1937 movie, The Black Tulip. Oh, that's an interesting little tidbit, Vicky. That's pretty cool. I love when they tie stuff like that yeah, together. Yeah. I just think that's really cool. Yeah, that's nice. All right, what about the other space weapons they're using? I mean, we have laser guns and all this other kind of stuff. Joe, what's, what's up with all that? Well, I mean, you don't want to shoot a, an actual rifle in, in space <laughs> if you're inside the space station, so that, that part makes sense. It brings to, to my sort of darkly sort of tinted mind two things one that there was an effort to design anti-personnel space weapons in the 50s called it was part of something called project horizon and it was an armed moon base low gravity not zero but they weren't big on guns really they liked um mines and things that that wouldn't shoot a projectile all the way around the moon so the idea that you're designing weapons specifically for use in space while not something the U.S. or anyone else is actually doing, the planning has been done before. So it wasn't that absurd back then to think the Cold War is going to extend. We're going to have armed troops that would have to operate in the space environment. All right, well, now fast forward. Now we're talking about armed the space as a contested military domain and the possibility of uniformed members on, on uh, military missions in orbit. So what weapons would they carry? Normally they'd carry weapons for when they come back down, but if they were to carry something, why not a laser weapon? And that, you know, a weapon, lasers in space can do a lot of things. I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you guys want me to get, but they're a great weapon, especially in space, not inside a space station, but outside the space station. You can blind uh, another satellite or another spacecraft with lasers. You can uh, burn a hole in in the skin, make it spin out of control, uh, or destroy it flat out with the energy of it. So laser space weapon always to me is yes, yes, yes. Um, now as an anti-personnel weapon, it's uh, they're better than Star Wars blasters, this portrayal to be honest. They're great for space because you don't have to reload them. Uh, you recharge them. So that's a, that, that's a great aspect because re- restocking is a real pain or rebuilding whatever you need. And they also give you the range of something. So you could set the power based on how far it is. You know, laser range finding is, you know, it's invisible, but it happens all the time. So again, laser space weapon, I like it. So maybe more so than, than most. And the idea of space Marines or space troops 
is not as far fetched now as it as it certainly it even was back in the seventies. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because that was one of the parts of this movie that I I've been like, come on, really? But you're telling me <laughs> that yeah, may save really. the last third of the movie. <laughs> yeah, because that actually Thanks, that Joe. actually makes I it sound the first more. Third, so I owe you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So that's that's good. That's pretty good. I mean, Drax, yeah. of course, uh, he had all these weapons as well. Not only just the United States, uh, he was pretty efficient at producing high tech stuff. And we saw the prototype actually of of the laser in Q's lab in Brazil, right? So yeah, the or guy in Rio. shooting it melts the guy the yeah. the mannequin's head. Yeah. So <laughs> when they're firing laser weapons and you see a blue light or a green light or a red light or whatever, would you actually see light when you fire a laser weapon, Joe? Ooh, well, I, the thing that I don't like about the visible laser weapons, you you might after all those tracers that are used on you know modern weapons and they're used to know where the hell you're shooting so but they're also a way that you know where you're being shot at from so you know would every single laser pulse cause a light or i would think no um you don't want to give away your own position no matter who you're shooting at it's a line of sight weapon don't forget so someone can see you when you're shooting at them yeah yeah. well uh, and and you're saying it's a tracer the laser inherently is going to be invisible right it's yeah unless you decide to make it so and then to make ah, it okay you would design it so that you could see every third pulse so you'd know where you're shooting just like every 10th bullet or what have you yeah. and you could calibrate that to zero if you wanted to have a, a shot where you didn't want to be seen so that would be something that would the, and would you color code it like uh, sports teams <laughs> maybe you know you don't want is that a friendly fire you know <laughs> avoidance mechanism or is that a way for someone to know every one of your positions if they're looking so Again, you could color code that part of your battle strategy going in. Hey, we're green. Don't shoot at green. <laughs> at all thirteen hundred, we're switching to red. Like that—that that hey, could be part of your it's like an army uniform, right? It's like hey, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so I love you know I love blazers for that, but I don't like blasters, right? I don't like Star Wars, you know, and I really don't like the way that Star Trek does it either, necessarily because that visible beam is not. The best way to that's not going to happen yeah well hey goldfinger jazzed his up too so we could see it so that was nice <laughs> yeah everything was jazz with him and gold it was all about the bling yeah all right we talked about the wrist gadget that bond used the little dark gun so he has this nice little seiko watch that contains plastic explosives just in case bond needs to blow something up and you know hey sometimes you do have to blow things up like a metal grate in a rocket pit or something you know you might need it. Okay, it's cool, but I don't know how how you'd have enough plastic explosives hidden in a watch to blow up even the watch. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. But when he opens it, you see this nice little spiral coil of of plastic explosives. So I don't know. Maybe there is enough. C4 is a term associated with plastic explosives, but there's relatively new plastic explosives now called EPX1, which are it's far more powerful. C4 is a British invention, as I mentioned. So they wanted to make sure their spies had it on hand just in case they needed to blow something up, right? We see in Die Another Day, Bond's Omega Seamaster 300M has a detonating pin built into the watch to detonate C4. So you need a detonating device. So in Moonraker, let's just say it's an explosive idea that Q has for a useful gadget. I don't know. Is there enough in a little watch like that to blow something up? significantly joe uh no but uh, you know it's it's in the movies plastic explosives or all explosives are only as exactly as powerful or as weak as they need to be at the time so um <laughs> that's just the rule of thumb he's always got just enough so you don't probably need much but you're not in any just any environment you're in a rocket something that's built to take high amounts of energy everything in a rocket stand is built rugged and thick and hard and every great what they don't want during a launch is a is an explosive overpressurization event to blow the a grate or any other piece of equipment up back into the rocket or into the where all the pressurized tanks are back onto the stand so everything is super hard and super reinforced no matter how much explosives he thinks he needs this isn't a sewer system this is a this is built to take extreme amounts of punishment so he's got to use more than any other environment. So I think he used way too little. I'm no expert on plastic, but 
I know I, I know a lot about rocket test stands and nothing is tied down loosely. So yeah, there you go. All right, that's a good point. So we talked about the gondola. Uh, here he's using also in Moondraker a rocket powered boat, and he wants to escape Jaws, who's in pursuit. And this rocket powered boat that's got all kinds of gadgets on this thing, of course, including a hang glider that <laughs> Q was brilliant enough to anticipate a need for. I mean, it drops mines, it does all kinds of other things, right? And yeah, okay, I, you can imagine a, a fast boat like this. I, I, I think we can propel this idea to the top and kind of believe it in terms of the boat. <laughs> Well, well, I I actually like how they took the what they did in From Russia with Love with the boat chase there at the end, where you had the stuff shooting and the things exploding in the water and stuff. Yeah. And they, I like the twist of putting the hang glider on this thing. Yeah, it was, was, was kind of nice. You want to put the hang glider in there just in case Bond <laughs> would would go over a waterfall. And geez, son of a gun, it, it, he does. And he has the hang glider, which was brilliant. I mean, Q is just amazing with that kind of stuff. Wow, such anticipation. He should get a promotion, I think. He was good. Q was good. All right. <laughs> ah. Hey, let's not forget Holly Goodhead. She has a few cool gadgets, too, provided by the CIA. She's got the little black diary book that fires a dart out of its spine. Darts were big in this movie. Darts were, darts are good. And, you know, real spies have used darts, I mean, to kill people and, and so on in real life. So, so yeah, darts, I think, are a good little device. And she's got a very cool device. It looks like a pen. And, and it, it really shows that a pen is mightier than the sword because we see, of course, we saw that in GoldenEye, too, that when clicked, this ejects a poisonous liquid. When noticing these devices while talking with Holly Goodhead, like the diary we just mentioned, and now the pen, he actually pockets the pen. He steals it. <laughs> well, Bond finds this pretty useful, and he uses it when he's fighting the python in that beautiful lair, the lagoon, in Brazil. And, of course, after he kills the python, he swims out. Whew, thank God, that's over, and it's Jaws he's, <laughs> he's facing again. Uh, beautiful there in the tropics with the waterfalls. I thought that was kind of cool. But there's one frozen waterfall, and it looks like a frozen waterfall. I guess it's really stalactites clinging to the ceiling, but they're clinging to the ceiling of a man-made enclosure. So I didn't understand that. But maybe they built a whole layer around that just to save that feature. But I thought, that's a little weird. But it's beautiful. She also has a flamethrower, Holly Goodhead, right? She's got this perfume... That's yeah, the Christian that Christian Dior perfume bottle she's got. Yeah, it, but I don't see an ignition source on that thing. So, like, I believe that it's a de believable device, but I don't see where the flame comes from. I mean, I understand the propellant shooting the the stuff that's going to be ignited, but I don't see an ignition source. Maybe it's got a hidden flint, like a cigarette lighter. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Considering this movie, it's got a little laser igniter. You just didn't see it. Ah, hey, there you go. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then her her wonderful gadget is the purse uh, with the antenna. <laughs> that's that's a good one. Standard issue CIA stuff, and uh, what the hell? It's good, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so what about the gadgets that Q showcases at the Brazilian monastery? Yeah. Bolas used to lasso cattle's feet together in the film, but they come in exploding form. I love that gadget. The yeah, machine gun gaucho. It looks silly and it sounds silly, but a similar deception device was used in the Second World War. And what about the laser gun? When I personally see the monk in the Jedi Knight type habit firing the gun, I always think of Star Wars. Yeah, how could you not? Yeah, no, Joe, would it, would it really melt rubber like that? So you've got the, the rubber head kind of just melts and a line goes across the middle of it, but he's shooting it all at one point. So Depending on how much power you put into it, it'll melt anything. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's very nimble, our lasers. So you could get it powered that you could etch a smiley face on it or burn it straight through, really. All right, so I think we covered most of the gadgets in the movie so far. I think all the, all the major ones and some of the minor ones as well. 
And it's beautiful that, that MI6 will ship this stuff all over the world for Bond, which is nice, no matter how big the device is, boats, gondolas, whatever. It's nice. So what about the last scene, though, Joe? I, I, I don't know. Where they finally tune in to Bond and Holly Goodhead returning to Earth, and it, it appears as though they're having sex in zero G. I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, for someone who's so good at it, and maybe it's just because he was in space for the first time, he was not doing it correctly. <laughs> so the choice that we were actually witnessing sex occurring, if they were doing it that way, is actually pretty, pretty low. <laughs> A, you're in zero G, so you want to make sure that you're somewhere where fluids and such aren't going to just float willy-nilly all over <laughs> the space. Tank. So, well, that was what the that, covering was for, to catch that. Right? <laughs> Also, more importantly, I think someone has to be the fulcrum, right? Someone's got to be, someone's got to be attached. You know, you, you, you want to just get a sleeping bag and attach it to a wall so that you have something to work off. Because otherwise, you're going to be flying all over the place, and it's going to be uglier than prom night. So, <laughs> uh, I think they were just cuddling. I think Bond was caught cuddling, and I think that that's the big joke of the movie. Well, well, wait, wait. So then Q is is wrong then when you know Frederick Gray is is appalled by this, and of course so is M. And when it's just like, what is Bond doing? And then Q says, I think he's attempting reentry, sir. So <laughs> attempting, he's never wrong. I okay, all right, that's exactly good. That's what good. was going on? Attempting. <laughs> so Candace, Q is actually smarter, even smarter than we thought. I mean, he Smart. says oh, attempting. So she would have needed to have been tied down for that to work. That's what Joe was saying. Yeah. You know, get a sleeping bag. Okay, yeah. anyway, if if you intend to have sex in space, please listen to this again, and Joe's got some good points there. And I love the, the blanket stayed in place anyway. That was nice in zero G. It was, it was good. On that high note, mile high note. (laughs) In that mile high note, that's good, Joe. We're going to wrap up our dissection of gadgets in Moonraker. We want to thank our special guest and smartest spy in the room, Joe Papalardo, for joining us again. Joe, it's always fun. Thanks a lot. Appreciate y'all having me. All right. This has been Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzato, Vicky Hodges, the SpyMovieNavigator.com. Subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app right now. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, too. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.